Hello, and thank you for tuning into Answers from the Lab, where we share Mayo Clinic knowledge and advancements on the state of testing and science from laboratory leaders and the people who are making it happen behind the scenes. I'm Dr. Bobby Pritt, the Chair of the Division of Clinical Microbiology in the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. With me today is Dr. Bill Maurice, the Chair of the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at Mayo Clinic and the President of Mayo Clinic Laboratories. This is our weekly discussion with Dr. Maurice in which we learn about updates in the field of laboratory medicine and pathology. Well, good morning, Bill, how are you? I'm doing great, Bobby, how are you? Great, yeah, it's a beautiful sunny day here today and uh, feels like spring, which is nice. Yeah, and this hemisphere, it's almost feeling like summer. Yeah, we still have those lows down into the 50s and the rain, but yeah, I'm all for it. Let's get some more spring here before it turns into baking hot summers. I'm with you. And with that, I think the world continues to turn. Yeah, so let's talk about the world and what's going on in it. What have you been hearing from Washington and your contacts? It's still a lot going on with Valid, and we've talked about Valid mm -hmm. a lot. And so that will, we'll continue to see discussion around that potential legislation for the FDA to oversee laboratory-developed tests. But the more pressing topic now, which is somewhat related, is monkeypox. Yeah, monkeypox is really actually becoming a hot topic in the federal government, both between the FDA and the CDC and the White House task force, the same task force that's been involved with COVID testing, has now become very concerned with monkeypox, as I think the WHO is also been sounding the alarm bells on monkeypox too, I think globally, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, this is very timely, Bill, because we just met with Dr. Matt Vinegar and heard about the basics for monkeypox. So now it's, I think, important to kind of monitor where this is. Last I saw, there was over 1,100 cases worldwide. And in the U.S., we're looking at about 17 cases. Not all of them have like an easily identifiable source. So I think that there's some concern this might turn into an, like an endemic infection. Yeah, well, and the concerns I've heard are really twofold. A thousand cases is a lot. And from what mm -hmm. I understand in the monkeypox outbreaks in the last 20 years, they've been limited to 10, you know, 20, maybe 100 cases top. So, man, that's a lot. So it's understandable. Yeah. The concerns that's happening and the discussions happening in the federal government are really thematically are very resonant now with what we've been through with COVID. Number one is testing, you know, and do we have enough testing? So you said there's 17 cases and yet there's a, a thousand more worldwide, but if physicians are, are slow to recognize it and if the tests aren't very readily available, are we under-recognizing cases? Are we having cases that are going undiagnosed, which is a big problem in terms of containment? There's a very much an interest now to pivot the discussions around COVID to monkeypox in terms of diagnostic testing and how do we get the public health labs, as well as the academic labs and the private labs, all having testing available. That's really the discussion. Haven't gotten that far yet, but that's a big part of it. And then I think the fear is that if we don't detect cases and it's allowed to transmit, that somehow, to your point, it'll hit certain parts of the population and become more endemic in those areas. And again, it's the same thing that we've talked about before. It would tend to be socioeconomic groups and parts of society that have access to testing and healthcare in general. So lower socioeconomic groups and particularly people of color. So yeah, it's, that's why it's really evolved from what seems like a very contained issue to maybe not. Yeah, it really is going to show the importance of testing for detecting these cases because they're not presenting 
in your typical pattern for monkeypox either. Usually you get this widespread rash, mostly focused on the extremities, the head, maybe a little on the trunk. But the cases I've been hearing about, it's just a few scattered lesions. They may be in the genital region. It looks like there's some sexual transmission. Not all patients are presenting with the typical prodrome of fever and swollen lymph nodes. So it's not necessarily on the top of a physician's mind when they see these patients. Yeah. So testing is going to play a really important role. So I guess that gets us to testing and where are we at? Well, I think that, you know, I know that there's movement, the CDC, there is a kit available. And I know that the FDA has been, and the CDC have been reaching out to other laboratories to see if they want to get access to them and think about bringing the tests up. So I think it's very early days. It's a bit, I don't want to say ironic, because maybe not ironic isn't the best word, but it's interesting in that as we're dealing with COVID and we're still dealing with COVID and we still see positivity rates pretty high in many parts of the country, we were thinking about, we had time to think about what about the next pathogen? You know, you and I talked even a couple of weeks ago about Ebola, there were a number of near misses and we should be thinking about this for the future. Well, it turns out the future is now, um, you know? And so, <laughs> and I think that's a lot of why there's a lot of conversation in the federal government and in the federal agencies around this topic, because they're realizing that maybe it is time to actually not think of COVID as an isolated incident, but what sort of policy changes, uh, what sort of procedural changes do we need to actually think about enacting now? That's not a public health emergency yet, but it certainly is a public health challenge with this atypical spread of monkeypox. So. Yeah, and we really do need closer look at how we respond to outbreaks like this. And you and I mentioned this, I think just the last time we spoke, whenever there's a new outbreak, the CDC and our public health labs are the first in the United States to get access to material. They quickly develop a test, but then often that test is limited to just use in the public health labs. Although this time the CDC is being more proactive and they're distributing their tests to a select group of labs. Of course, the problem is, is it's a very standard CDC formatted test. It requires manual extraction. It's a bit more labor intensive. And for people who don't have the right equipment, they can't bring it up and it has to be performed exactly the way the CDC designed it. So that gets back to the whole issue of what role that have developed tests play. Some laboratories might be able to bring up their own LDT a lot more quickly. And then uh, thankfully, this time we do have some commercial tests that are already available. Of course, they're all RUO status, research use only, meaning that labs have to bring them up as a laboratory developed test. I know here at Mayo, we're looking at two different kits and possibly the CDC test kit. Of course, none of us have positive control material, so that's another challenge. It's interesting because I think about phrases that were pretty foreign to me even a few years ago, things like public-private partnership, and what does that mm -hmm. mean? That's a lot of the conversation which is bubbling up very quickly about what does it mean for the CDC and the public health laboratories as really the standard barrier for, bearer for protecting public health? How would they more quickly engage not just academic medical centers, but even commercial laboratories that have higher throughput equipment that can do more testing. What does that look like? Um, I think they want to get involved both the manufacturers and the testing laboratories. And it, you know, there were a lot of those conversations. You we go back two years ago, we were talking a lot. And then of course those conversations kind of went, that, you know, again, like with a lot of things, they said they've sort of dissipated. But now the, the sense is, oh boy, we now we're dealing with this again do we need to really just think about some kind of standing procedure and standing approach to this? Because again, monkeypox is now here and there's other things out there that are circulating that 
are atypical. And then we're seeing influenza and RSV at atypical times. And now there's this apparent viral hepatitis in children, which may be adenovirus related. I think so. We're thinking about this at, the, at both the national level as well as the global level. And a lot of people are like, well, this is confusing, you know, because why now? And the why now is because of COVID, both because of what we did in response to COVID, but also because it appears the way the pathogens are circulating right now has been changed a little bit mm -hmm. because of all the, the distancing and travel and all the other things and masking and all the things that have been happening the last couple of years. I mean, you're the microbiologist. That's my understanding anyways. That's my understanding as well, Bill, and it probably has a little bit to do with your background in immunology, too. If people aren't being exposed to pathogens, they're not having their immune systems challenged, perhaps they are more susceptible to atypical types of presentations of pathogens, or they might be more susceptible to pathogens in general. We're really not sure, of course, with the hepatitis, but that is one of the hypotheses that it's children having an atypical reaction to a virus that normally is pretty widespread, but they haven't seen it for a couple of years. It raises a lot of interesting things, um, just the changes we've seen in our society with COVID and the fact that we've maybe been protecting ourselves immunologically and, and from an important deadly virus. So we don't wanna lose sight of that. But then also the questions of how are we going to handle the next outbreak and we are in it right now. It yeah. may be very small and limited, but it could become larger. And I think from a laboratory regulation standpoint, there could come a point where the federal government, if this were to get much, much bigger, could declare an, another emergency. And then all of our testing would have to then fall under the emergency use authorization process, which puts a whole different layer of regulation onto our testing. Now, we're nowhere near that right now, but just something to mention that the EUA process, it's important for safety purposes for quality of testing, but it doesn't necessarily help access to testing. Yep. Takeaway is, I guess, a couple of things. Number one is that this will spur the conversation to say, how does diagnostic testing need to work in the U.S. and globally? It's gone from a very theoretical conversation to a much more substantive and pressing one, I guess, with these things that we're seeing. And so to your point, and, and in the U.S., we've talked about things, and we'd like last time with that, with Ballot, about technical certification and centers of excellence and ways to really start to think about an engagement this time of, of the academic medical centers. So still a lot to learn. The concern, of course, a few months ago was that we were going to lose momentum around a lot of these conversations because people just want to move on from COVID. I don't think that's going to happen. The other thing that's intriguing to me is just what we'll learn from this. Of course, I got my PhD in immunology in the 90s. Immunology as a field had really exploded because of HIV. And HIV spurred a whole host of funding for research into the, the virus itself, but then the understanding of the immune system. And we have a great understanding of the immune system on the individual level how population immunity works and how immunity in children helps protect society. That's something that's now another burgeoning field because the thought is, is that children are such an important component of how we as, as a species, if you will, but as, as a group, sort of group immunity and the role that they play. And so five years from now, we'll look back at this time and we'll understand a whole lot more about how our immune system works because of all this, which will be to everyone's benefit because the immune system is such a vital component of so many different aspects of health, not just even responding to infection, but also cancer and autoimmune conditions and other things. So yeah, it'll be a time of great discovery. 
unfortunately, right now we're living in a time of continued uncertainty, which can be a bit unpleasant. Right. Well, we'll get through it and we'll keep learning and hopefully we won't have another outbreak popping up so we can deal with monkeypox and hepatitis and figure out what's going on. So you and I can continue to keep everyone updated. That's right. And I think for all of us in the laboratory, it gives us another opportunity to help people understand the value of our profession and also in the, in the medical and healthcare community to help strike the right balance. Again, people, there's a lot, the fear factor is high already with COVID. So Again, really helping to explain what this is, why it's important, but also why we don't need to get too reactionary in how we're responding. We just need to be thoughtful. Yeah, and to emphasize to the people working in the laboratory how essential their position, the work that they do is, especially when you're dealing with these new unknown pathogens and you need to be able to detect them early on and then monitoring throughout an outbreak. So I think for all of you out there working in the healthcare industry and in the laboratory specifically, thank you for what you're doing and what you're doing is so vital in these current outbreaks. Yes, indeed. And all the time. So yeah, I couldn't say it better myself. So with that, probably a good time. Get to get a great note to close on. I'm pretty confident now we'll have something to talk about again next week. Of course. All right. Well, until then, Bill, I'll see you later. See you later. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to Answers from the Lab. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to tune in every Thursday and every other Tuesday.